You're listening to Studentafton Podden, a collaboration between Studentafton and Radio AF. Tonight, an interview with Nobel Peace Prize laureate and human rights activist Shirin Ibadi, moderated by Alejandro Funtes and translated by Mariam Musal. Today is a pleasure to be here with you, Dr. Ibadi. Mariam, thank you for being with us and for helping us in our conversation. Our idea is to have an intimate conversation about everything. So my first question to you will be, because you are a Nobel Prize laureate, how do you feel? What was your first reaction when you got that news? Uh, when I first heard that I'd won the Nobel Peace Prize, I was very surprised because I didn't even know that I'd been a candidate for winning the prize. Then I was extremely happy. I was happy because I thought it's amazing that the voices of us Iranian, especially Iranian women, are being heard. They've, they've been monitored around the world. So I was very grateful for having won that prize. Thank you very much for, for that answer. Actually, that leads me to my second question which is in connection with what you said in your Nobel uh, lecture in 2003. And you said, and I quote, the Nobel Peace Prize has been awarded to a woman from Iran, a Muslim country in the Middle East. So how Iranian authorities took that news? At first, the Iranian government, they tried to totally ignore the news that I had won the prize. Then when they realized that it's being reported by so many news agencies throughout the world, at 11 o'clock at night, one television channel in Iran very briefly reported that yes, Abadi won this prize. And that was that. And the very next day, a journalist asked the then Iranian president for his reaction that I had won the prize. And his response was, well, the Nobel Peace Prize is not important. It's the Nobel Prize for literature that's important. <laughs> so peace, peace is not that important. Literature is more. But you have been written many books, so you could win the Literature Nobel Prize as well. Of course, literature is important, but that very president who claims that the Nobel Prize for Literature is more important is from a country where there is intense censorship and you cannot even have a book published without a permit. And now that we're talking about but books, I should mention that I had written a book which was on the subject of law for children and youth, which was aimed at the target age group of 10 to 16. And I had permission to have it published. It had been published, but later they decided to uh, uh, prevent the book from being sold. In fact, uh, when the Nobel Prize Committee uh, motivate your selection as the new laureate, they said that uh, that was for your efforts for democracy, human rights, and especially for the struggle for the rights of women and children. After 12 years that that prize was awarded to you, do you think that the situation of women and children in Iran and in the world has ameliorated? 
First of all, uh, the situation of human rights, especially women and children, uh, it cannot be changed by one person. What it needs is a trend, it's a movement. Um, but I have to mention that we have had some success stories in terms of uh, improvements in human rights situation for women and for children, an instance of which was in 2004, we managed to amend the custody law in favor of Iranian women. The Iranian feminist movement has had some successes and we have managed to improve several other laws in favor of women. But we still have a long way in order to reach the optimal point. In fact, um, thank you for, for introducing the, the issue of women in Iran. And if I remember correctly, when you came here to London in 2009, that was uh, on the occasion of the Anna Linth lecture organized by the Raoul Wallenberg Institute and the Lund University. You expressly mentioned, and, and I quote uh, your lecture at the time, that according to, the Iran to Iranian law, the value of women's life is half that of a man. And in that sense, I would like, if you would like to, to share with us your experience of growing up in Iran as a little child, in that patriarchal society that differentiates between men and women? First of all, I would like to highlight the fact that the majority of these discriminatory laws were actually adopted after the 1979 Islamic Revolution. We did not have them before the revolution under the Shah. That is why I've always described the 1979 revolution in Iran as the revolution of men over women. Hmm. A few months after the 1979 revolution, we still didn't have a, a constitution in Iran, we didn't have a parliament, we didn't have a president, and it was the council of the revolution that was actually running the country. And one of the very first laws that this Council of Revolution adopted was to allow a man to have more than one wife. In fact, it seemed like we had staged a revolution to allow men to have more than one wife. After that, more and more discriminatory laws against women were adopted. Um, one instance of which is as noted, the uh, value of a woman's life is considered to be half that of a man. For example, if my brother and I are involved in a car accident and uh, we both suffer equally, the financial compensation the court awards to my brother would be twice as much as that awarded to me. In a court of law, a testimony of one man is tantamount and equal to the testimony of two women. And there are many other discriminatory laws. The feminist movement in Iran is very strong. That is why you will find the majority of the regime's opponent among women. 
با این توضیحات میتونین So having told you about this I'm sure you've realized that I wasn't actually raised under such discriminatory laws the way I was raised went to school became a judge in those days we did not have such discriminatory laws No actually uh, I would like to ask you because when the revolution came in 1979 you were a judge you were sitting in a court and you were preceding the court and then you were dismissed as a judge because you were a woman. So what about your feelings at that time? How your life, your personal life changed and your professional career changed after that decision? I was passionate about my job and I had really progressed as a judge as well. When they communicated the news to me that I am no longer a judge, I was very upset. I was upset because I could no longer continue with my favorite job and I was also upset because women could no longer act as judges. So it hurt me personally and professionally. But at that time, but straight away I thought, I am not going to stop my efforts. I am going to make sure that you regret that decision. <laughs> and I really delved deeply into my work and I started writing books. And I wrote a total of 14 books, several of which have been translated into many world languages. I spoke at many seminars and events and I wrote a multitude of articles. Um, then, with the help of a few friends, we set up an NGO and the NGO was to support children, especially uh, young girls. So we decided to, and that was in fact the first NGO that was set up specializing in helping young girls. As a result of my work, I became well known and I was awarded several international prizes. But I was not contented with that. Uh, at the Nobel Peace Ceremony, um, when I was being given the award, the ceremony was uh, being uh, streamed live via satellite all over the world, including Iran. And I was certain that the Iranians were all watching me, including the head of the judiciary, who was sitting in front of his satellite TV to hear what I was saying. And it was then as they called out my name and I went to collect my award, I thought to myself, well, this head of judiciary is now thinking, had we not run her out of this country, we, she could have been a source of pride for us. So it was then and then that I thought victory was mine and I had managed to defeat them. <laughs> Thank you very much for, for sharing this experience with us. And, uh, and actually, when you were writing those books in Iran, many of them were about human rights. And your activities were connected with human rights, defending the rights of the most vulnerable uh, people in, in Iran. So actually, I'm curious. I would like to ask you, what human rights mean for you? 
حقوق بشر قبل از اینکه کلمات بی Human rights rather than being just mere lifeless words on a piece of paper for me human rights is about a culture is about a human culture and in all my activities i did my utmost to try and spread this culture for instance uh, we were teaching human rights courses at various levels pro bono without charging anyone and that book of mine that I mentioned earlier and how they stopped its publication was about this very subject of teaching youth and adolescents what human rights means. And actually, uh, you, you point out something that I think will be very interesting to discuss because you mentioned human rights as culture, culture of human rights. But uh, if we read the doctrine about human rights nowadays, especially among the head of state, government, human rights are criticized because, according to part of them, do not take into consideration the cultural differences of regions and countries. So, in that sense, I, I would like you to elaborate on the universality of human rights. Do you think that universality of human rights is at risk nowadays? Now, those governments that do not want to respect human rights, they actually uh, uh, invoke the uh, cultural relativism. And they say that country to country, we have different cultures. And what you mean by human rights culture is a Western concept of human rights, and it's not compatible with Islamic or Eastern culture. But I disagree with them. I think that human rights is universal and it can be compatible with any culture and with any religion. And I address particular Islamic states, Muslim states, uh, that they are the ones who say that under the pretext that we are Muslims, we can do whatever hell we want with our people under the name of Islam. Actually, two days ago, three days ago, at the General Assembly in the United Nations, New York, a head of state from an African country said that they are not gays, referring to the new rights that the international community wanted to create and to impose in his views, to countries. So my question will be, in those cases, when we have uh, certain cultures that have practices that has been interpreted as in violation with human rights or not in line with human rights standards, how to resolve that conflict when human rights standards establish one, one behavior and cultural practices establish a different behavior, or religious norm, a different behavior, and they are not compatible. How to resolve that conflict? Yes, this conflict must be eliminated because there are many cultures and many traditions which are wrong. Now, how can we actually manage to eliminate such conflict? For instance, the equality laws that you have in this country, if you want to take them and uh, enforce them in Saudi Arabia, uh, 
within a week or so. It will not work because even women in Saudi Arabia do not yet believe in such equality because it's not part of their culture. Therefore, to do this, you have to do it gradually. And as a lawyer, I have to say that law, the law has two important tasks in society. First is to establish order in society, and second, to ensure that social culture has progressed. So the law must be a step ahead of the culture in a society, established culture in a society, in a bit to be able to change that culture. And when the law is a step above the culture, then people will respect the law, and as a result, the culture will gradually move upwards and progress. And again, we have to keep changing the law, but always making sure that the law is above the culture of the society so that it can enforce, it can be enforced. So you can, in that way, you can make sure that in society the order remains, and at the same time, the culture can actually be changed. However, the problem with Muslim countries is that they are not at all willing to change their laws. Naturally, until you change the law, you cannot change the culture. Okay, 1500 years ago, a man could have several wives, and now they want to enforce the very law that they had at in those days. Which means that we're never going to change the polygamy law. So we could easily change the culture in a society by using the tool of the law. Problems with countries such as Iran is that the culture of the society is above the law. So in other words, instead of the law being above the culture, it's the other way around. And as a result, there are discriminatory laws adopted as a result of the culture being above the law, and which leads to these social tension. Actually, I, I remember an anecdote that you, uh, you tell in one of your books. When you try to change the family law in Iran, that you presented the draft of family law to the parliament and what happened then? I think you have a fantastic anecdote of what happened when someone tried to change the law in order to the law respect human rights. Now, the sixth parliament in Iran was dominated by mainly reformists and the females uh, deputies in that parliament, they approached me and they said, could you draw, draft a family law and draft it in a way that the oversight guardian council that makes sure that parliament laws are compatible with the constitution and the Sharia law will not be able to fault it. So I drafted this family law, which, okay, it, wouldn't, it didn't 100% meet the needs of the Iranian women in family, but at least it met 80% of their needs. 
نمایندگان مجلس گفتن که اگر بفهمند تو این قانون so these uh, female parliament members they said to me we're not going to say that you have actually written this this draft law because We know the government doesn't like you and they'll reject it. And I agreed, so they actually presented this motion, presented my draft. But as expected, the male-dominated parliament, all the clerics in it, they found so many faults and they said, no, this and that clause is contrary to the Sharia law. And as these people who'd found faults had not read the Sharia and did not know it as well as I did, and they could not really argue uh, against this law, so they had to invite me to take part in this debate. And one of them, who was a clergy, and incidentally, he's still a member of parliament, he said to me, oh, this clause in this law that you have uh, written, which allows the women to file divorce in certain cases, is against the Sharia. And I said to him, do you know this book, which is called Sharhalom, uh, which is taught at, at Iranian seminaries? I said, have you read it? And uh, do you know it? And now this book that I mentioned is a book that is taught at every seminary. And to be a cleric, you must have read this book. He said, yes, of course I've read it. I was prepared for that response. So I brought the book with me. And I'd highlighted the relevant passage. So I took the book out, showed him the highlighted passage and said, what you say is against the Sharia, look at this book, it is not. And a few minutes later, um, they were bringing tea for all of us. And uh, this cleric, actually the, the boy who was serving tea, he called him and he said, come outside. And he whispered something in his ear. So he came back and uh, this uh, tea boy said to me, Mr. Abadi, there's a telephone call for you. Could you step outside, please? Uh, so I was surprised. I wasn't expecting a telephone call. Nevertheless, I went out to see what it's all about, and there wasn't a telephone call. So this servant said to me, oh, Mrs. Abadi, uh, we did not tell you the truth. There wasn't a call. We just wanted you to leave the room because now they want to take votes, and they did not want you in the room anymore. And I said, but my bag, my coat is in the room. Can I at least go and fetch them? And the guy said, no, we don't. don't want you in there anymore. And we just didn't want to rudely say to you, leave the room. That's why we made the excuse of this telephone call. We'll bring your bag to you. And, uh, and I wanted to say that, uh, yes, I wanted to go back and say that I know the, you were just because I was right. And that clergy could not accept that he was wrong. And I had proven that I was right. And I knew the Sharia and he didn't. Bah. And sadly, my, the draft that I had written was rejected and they never ever debated it again. In fact, once again, I proved to the clergy that under the name of Islam, you are actually um, saying, bullying the women, intimidating women. I remember this, what I'm about to say, I used to say to my students, and if there are students amongst you, I would like you to listen carefully. When you are in 
a fight with somebody, you have to use exactly the same weapon to defend yourself as the enemy. If the enemy is using a gun, you cannot uh, fight back with a knife. Therefore, when an undemocratic country starts a fight with me using the Sharia law as a weapon, I have to fight back using the Sharia law. And in order to win that fight, I have to make sure I know the Sharia better than he does. Thank you very much for, for that answer. And I hope that we will not receive any phone call right now to stop our conversation. But... There is a call. Unfortunately, I do tend to get these telephone calls a lot because I have <laughs> spoken against many people. <laughs> And I have um, not people, but a big group that maybe you can spoke against now because this is a phone call coming, coming from reality. And why I'm saying this? Because nowadays, the name of Islam and uh, the Sharia law and the Islamic doctrine is used in order to justify an uh, incredible kind of atrocities that the group is committing in the Middle East. And I'm talking about the Islamic State, Daesh, which is killing people under the name of Islam. So my, my question to you will be, if you think that there is something intrinsically violent in Islam, or it's just a misuse or misinterpretation of the Islamic doctrine. First of all, I would like to highlight the fact that politically I'm secular. I believe that a state must be, must be separated from religion or ideology. Now the Islamic revolution in the past 36 years and the church in the Middle Ages, they demonstrated how when religion takes over the helm, how they actually make life hell for the people. As regards the Sharia law, I have to point out that the Sharia law, like many other religious laws, can have many interpretations. For instance, in the Christian world, you get one church that accepts abortion, you get another that rejects it. You get a church that accepts same-sex marriages, you get another that rejects it. So the same applies to Islam and to the Sharia law, but unfortunately non-democratic countries such as Iran, they choose an interpretation that suits them, and with them they can exert power over the people and abuse human rights. For instance, look at Indonesia. Indonesia has the highest number of Muslims in the world. In Indonesia, there are some women who like to wear the hijab. There are some who choose not to. The hijab or the Islamic dress code is not compulsory in Indonesia. Some 30 years ago in Indonesia, a woman became president. And at the same time, look at countries such as Saudi Arabia or Iran. If a woman is dressed the way I am, sitting on the stage, and goes on the street, she is arrested and charged for having committed a crime. Therefore, we have to see what Islam says. And the reason I emphasize that the state must be separated from religion is because 
politicians must not abuse the religious sentiments of the people. And since you mentioned ISIS or Islamic State, I would like to add something. Please. As I'm sure you're aware, a coalition has been formed of some 40 countries and they are trying to fight Daesh or ISIS. And I'm surprised to see how some governments are repeating the same mistakes. داعش فقط یک گروه تروریستی نیست. ISIS is not just a terrorist group. It is a wrong ideology, and a wrong ideology cannot be eliminated through bombings. از ابتدای قرن Since the beginning of the 21st century, Western-led forces led by the United States have been fighting the Taliban. But has, have they managed to eliminate the Taliban? Not only they have failed to eradicate the Taliban, the Taliban has grown in strength, and as a matter of fact, ISIS was actually born out of the Taliban movement. Now let's go back a bit to 9-11. Now imagine if after 9-11, instead of invading Afghanistan and attacking the Taliban, the United States had, in the name of the 4,000 people who were killed in 9-11 incident, established 4,000 schools in Afghanistan in the name of those 4,000 people. What would have happened? Let's say that one of these schools in Afghanistan was uh, in the name of George, somebody who was killed in 9-11. That Afghan child going to that school would always know that, okay, my father or my uncle may have been responsible for killing of this George, but now thanks to him, I'm studying in this school. So you see, that child wouldn't pick up a weapon, but if they kill... Uh, the Taliban, the child of that Taliban, would also follow suit and take up weapons. That's why I'm saying instead of throwing bombs at ISIS, throw books at them. So maybe in that way you can eradicate the wrong idea. That's, um, that's a very, very refreshing thought. And I think the problem is nowadays that what we heard from the United Nations and the General Assembly when... Um, uh, Russia is proposing a new coalition against uh, ISIS and in that coalition Russia proposed as well to include uh, Bashir al-Assad, uh, the president of Syria, as another mean in order to achieve peace, security and perhaps democracy. Do you think that any means is a legitimate means in order to achieve peace? First of all, I would like to say that Bashar Assad is a war criminal and I hope one day he will be put on trial at the International Criminal Court. And the fact that the big powers have created this current situation in the Middle East, it's only because they want to sell their weapons. 
And I say too that even if they collaborate with Bashar Assad and involve him in this, they would want him to throw even more bombs on ISIS. And as I said earlier, you cannot get rid of the wrong ideology by throwing bombs. Telephone, any telephone calls for me? It's coming. I think it's coming. Uh, but let's use the time that we have before the phone call will arrive. Uh, there is a, a connected topic to the conflict in Syria. And it's a topic that touched upon the situation in Europe. Because since the conflict in Syria started, and even before, thousands of refugees have arrived to Europe. 100,000 of refugees. The European countries' reaction has been very different between each other, from protection to rejection, from providing refuge to building walls for those coming uh, to Europe. So in 1993, coming back to the past, among all of those books that you have written, there is one on the right to, of refugees. So what is your reading of the current refugee crisis that Europe is facing Europe and the world. Now, it all depends on how every state treats a refugee. If you treat refugees well, they could help your country progress. They could help in the development of your country. But if you mistreat them, they could start posing a threat to your security. One case in point is Iran and the way we treated or mistreated the Afghan refugees who came to our country. First, we encouraged them to come to the country, but then they were refused identification paper. So as a result, they became illegal workers working in the black market. And now they have started to pose a threat to security. But if you treat these refugees in Europe, if you treat them well, if you teach them professions, if you teach them skills, if you integrate them into your culture, they could actually uh, constitute a positive force towards your progress because the birth rate in Europe is declining and these refugees could be a force towards progress. Very good thought. Very good thought. Thank you very much for that. Um, let's change a little bit the topic because there are too many, too many topics to discuss today. And uh, you mentioned about threat to security and staying on security, which is intimate connected to peace. This year, something happened in connection with Iran. Actually, a months ago in uh, in Vienna, an historic agreement has been reached between Iran and uh, the group of five plus one, that is United States, Russia, China. United Kingdom, France, and Germany. And this was a deal in order to curb the Iranians' nuclear program to prevent Iran to achieve the nuclear bomb. What is your interpretation of that deal? President Obama, that, uh, President Obama had said to Congress a few times that if we do not reach a deal with Iran, the other option would be a war. So it's natural when it's uh, between war and peace, one opts for peace. So I very much hope that both the United States and Iran, they fulfilled their commitments in this deal because so far not much has happened. Now the sanctions had hurt the Iranian economy a great deal, so I hope the sanctions will be lifted. 
But please bear in mind that uh, the arrival of investors, businessmen, traders in Iran must not allow human rights to be neglected. I'm sorry to say this, but when Europeans actually sit behind negotiating tables when it comes to trade deals, they tend to forget human rights. Is there a telephone call for me? <laughs> Let's talk about business. <laughs> But let me let me ask you a question uh, in connection still with this nuclear deal. Do you think that this could open the door for democratic process, democratic modifications, democratic trends in Iran, or is just an open door for an economic growth? That all depends on the type of trade that they do with Iran. I would like to say a few words about what experienced uh, with regards to Nokia's, Nokia Siemens uh, Corporation's deal with Iran. Now, Nokia Siemens Corporation had sold the Iranian government a software uh, through which uh, they could track down people on their mobile phones and find out where they are calling from. And this technology that was sell sold by Nokia Siemens to Iran was uh, abused by the Iranian government in 2009 when as a result of rigged elections thousands of people took to the street and the green movement in Iran was born and many people were arrested because thanks to this software they could track down the protesters and arrest them. So I mentioned this at every opportunity I got. Whenever I delivered a speech anywhere, I would say that thanks to this technology that Nokia Siemens have sold to Iran, many of our journalists have been arrested and are behind bars. And I continued uh, highlighting this uh, issue until Nokia Siemens management contacted me. And uh, we actually had several talks about this. Um, so I had several very detailed legal discussions with Nokia Siemens. I will not bore you with the details of that. Uh, to cut a long story short, Nokia Siemens actually, after my discussions with them, issued a statement which was posted on their website saying because the Iranian government has been misusing the technology sold to them by us, we have decided to cancel our contract with them and we will no longer sell them this technology. So as a matter of fact, be good for every company before they actually sign a contract with Iran to stipulate in the contract that should the company notice that the Iranian government is in any way uh, misusing anything sold to them to the detriment of the people, they would be able to resign that contract without any having to pay any fines. That way, they could do engage in trade with Iran, but at the same time, they have the green light to resign the contract with Iran should they at any point find out that the Iranian government is exploiting that uh, contract in any way without having to pay any compensation. Thank you very much. And that's, that showed that actually one person could make a difference, could introduce changes. Uh, and in that sense, when the Nobel Prize Committee decides to award you 
the Nobel Prize, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize, in order to to reinforce, to strengthen rule of law, democracy, human rights in the world. What do you think that was the message that was passed to Iran and the region by giving to you the Nobel Prize? The awarding of this prize actually gave a sense of self-confidence to women in the Muslim world, in the whole of the Muslim region, that they came, they came to realize that the world cares for the situation of women and their rights. And after me in 2013, as a matter of fact, Tawakul Kerman, who is uh, from Yemen, she uh, and is a journalist, she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize and she is the founder of the women journalist movement um, in uh, Yemen, in the Arab world. So that's a, that's a very refreshing message because uh, an individual could be seen as a role model in order to inspire others. But do you see yourself as a role model for uh, women, for youth, for generations in Iran, in the Arab world and worldwide? Uh, as a general rule, I don't believe in role models. I even tell my daughters never uh, follow me as a role model because every person is different and every situation is different. And it's interesting because my younger daughter, who is a lawyer incidentally and is a human rights lawyer and a human rights activist, she doesn't work with me because she says, I want to be independent. <laughs> I'm sure that she received a... A lot of inspiration from having you as a mother. But today we have here a very large audience. And I'm sure that many of them came here in order to search for inspiration. So before I open the floor for questions from the audience, I would like to ask you, which is your message for them that are here listening to you? My message, especially to young people, is have your dreams and follow your dreams. Do not be afraid of defeat because every defeat could be start of a victory. Have you ever actually thought about this, that every time you want to uh, jump over an obstacle, how you do it? Instinctively, before jumping over an obstacle, you take a step back before you jump. So look at defeat as that. Defeat is like you have taken one step back and thanks to the experience you have gained from that defeat, you are going to jump over that obstacle and reach a victory. So have your dreams, follow your dreams and never be afraid of defeat. You're listening to Student Afton Podden. Now we continue with the Q&A with the audience. As you mentioned um, before, uh, Iranian culture and looking, looking at Iranian history, uh, in our culture, the, the, let's see, the restrictions on women's and the human rights is something new since 1979 uh, revolution. Uh, what do you think is the root cause for these and how they can end? How do you see them that what can what can be the way to let's see to end this uh, apartheid regime of Iran which is running apartheid against women and against other religions and people who believe differently than them um, 
ریشه فرهنگ that the root of the patriarchal culture in the east is much stronger than it is in the west and that has many reasons and one is the patriarchal interpretation of islam But what is important is how we can actually confront this patriarchal culture. Now confronting a patriarchal culture is the duty of every Iranian man and woman. For instance, when they are banning women in Iran from attending sports stadium, why is it that men continue going to sports stadium? They should say, no, we're not going to go until you allow women. to go as well. <laughs> Your generation lived through a defining chapter in Iranian and world history with the years prior to and following the revolution of 79. What would you call the most important lessons from that period uh, for our generation to carry on considering that we've grown up in a very different environment? The most important lesson that we should learn from 1979 revolution is that state must be separated from religion. And this is not a small lesson. I hope the whole of the Middle East will actually follow that lesson. Hello, Mrs. Abadi. I would like to ask you a question about refugees. You mentioned before that if a state treats refugees in a bad way, they might become rebellious. But, on the other hand, many of them are led to concentration camps in Europe. How can we tackle this problem and what's the role of the International Court of Hague in this situation? Thank you. Uh, the High Council, uh, Council of Refugees, uh, the United Nations High Council of Refugees is in charge of uh, looking after refugees affairs. But before putting my faith in international organizations or societies, I actually believe more in the civil societies in every country. It's the civil societies in every country that must put pressure on their respective governments to teach these refugees as skills to educate them so they could actually help in the progress of your country rather than isolating them in camps where they become a threat. You have to help them integrate in your society. Now I repeat, the society in Europe, population-wise, is becoming an old society. It desperately needs fresh young blood. So why don't you see this refugee situation as an opportunity to teach them skills, to integrate them, so they can help in the development of your society. You have experienced being an activist inside Iran. You have also been, uh, you have also experienced being active outside Iran. So how do you compare the influence and the role of an activist inside the country and in exile? What is the difference? Have you ever wished to be in Iran? Naturally, being an activist in Iran uh, would be actually would have a greater impact and it would be more effective than being an activist abroad. But those of us who have been forced to come abroad, we could still be effective activists by being loudspeakers, 
voices of the people inside the country. My advice to you is to follow Iranian news on a daily basis and do not just get your news from one or two websites and look at different websites belonging to different factions. And then try and have links with colleagues in Iran and continue this cooperation with colleagues that are inside Iran. When the first few weeks after I'd left Iran, I'm sure the security agents were so happy to see the back of me. But I said to them, soon I'm going to make sure you regret this. And it's for that very reason, the 10 months a year, I'm traveling around the world, I'm speaking wherever I get uh, there is an occasion to tell the world what is going on in Iran. Bear in mind, I am not a young, useful, energetic person anymore, and traveling as much as I am, it does take its toll, it's not easy, but I'm not going to stop. I will continue doing this to make sure the world knows what is happening in Iran. Uh, my question is about the nuclear deal uh, recently agreed on between uh, Iran and the P5 plus one countries. Uh, let's suppose it's uh, fully implemented, and if it is, uh, that it leads to the lifting of the sanctions and the uh, subsequent opening up of Iran to the rest of the world and the escalation of uh, the tension between Iran and uh, the West. Do you think that that would lead to, uh, that that would be beneficial to this development of human rights in Iran? Or would it more be, as some would argue, uh, strengthening the hands of the ruling class or mullahs in Iran and deepen their pockets and uh, enabling them to further the, suppress the development of human rights in Iran? As I said earlier, Obama had said to the Congress that the other option would have been a military option and when the choice is war or peace, of course, peace was the better option for Iran. Therefore, I am totally in favor of the nuclear court uh, between 5 plus 1 and Iran and I think that was definitely in the interest of the Iranian people. But on the other hand, I would like to mention that from the very beginning, Iran's nuclear energy program was wrong because Iran should not have spent and invested so heavily in this uh, nuclear uh, program. The Iranian government has always alleged that uh, they are enriching uranium for the purpose of, for civilian purposes only and for nuclear energy. Even if we assume that to be true, again, the program would still, the nuclear program would have been wrong. Uh, basically, nuclear power plants are not good for the environment at all. That is why we can see that in Germany, they're closing down their nuclear power plants. In, in the United States for the past 20 years, they haven't uh, set up any new nuclear uh, power plants. Now, the nuclear plants, uh, they end up with nuclear waste, and when they dump this nuclear waste, wherever this nuclear waste is dumped for two centuries, 
that terrain has been contaminated. Now the Iranian government invested billions of dollars in the Bushehr nuclear power plant, uh, which only meets 3% of the electricity needs of Iran, whereas they could have invested much less and they could uh, and uh, used it in solar uh, power and that would have been a lot more effective. And moreover, Iran sits on an earthquake uh, fault line. So, and every year we had a small and larger earthquakes uh, happening in Iran. And there is very every likelihood that a similar incident as the Fukushima could happen in Iran. So I am totally in favor of this accord because, as a saying goes, if you try and curb a loss, any loss, it is a benefit. Thank you very much, Dr. Ebadi. And uh, before, before finishing, there is anything else that you would like to share with the audience as your final, final message that they will take with them and bring home. My final message to you, young generation, is never listen to the advice of the older generation. Just do what you like. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. You've listened to Student Afton Podden, a collaboration between Student Afton and Radio AF. More of our podcasts are available on iTunes and RadioAF.com. Before we finish, I would like to ask you one last question. If you get to wish for one person to come here to Student Afton as a guest, who would it be? Let's start with you, Alejandro. Ay, ay, ay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, um, I think I will steal one of the candidates from Dr. Ebadi, because being myself an Argentinian, I wish for the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do our best, I promise. <laughs> Quite difficult, though. <laughs> and who would your dream guest be? In the first instance, of course, I would love the Pope to come, but should the Pope be busy and unable to come, I would really wish for his compatriot, who is a fellow Nobel laureate from Argentina, Adolfo Perez Skibble, to come in his place. That would be, uh, and because he was very influential in the civil war in Argentina, especially helping with the children, with the street children, and uh, um, as a result of that, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize.